And welcome to a special edition of Racing Through Time, the podcast covering classic NASCAR. Ricky Wittenberg and Andy Waddell back in the saddle again. This special series that we're going to run over the next, uh, we're going to have four or five episodes. And we are going to cover, Andy, classic Daytona 500s. Mm, Reunited and it feels so good. Yeah. All right, so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to start with 1983. And the reason I picked 1983 was because of the Kelly Yarborough flip. That was really the reason that I picked this race. And then when I start getting into it and we go through the clash and the 125s, there's a lot to talk about besides just, you know, the whole backstory of Kel getting the car out of the showroom, which technically wasn't true and all this, bringing a backup car after he flips during Daytona 500 qualifying. There's a lot going on during this speed weeks. Yeah. This one right here, it didn't ring a bell when you first mentioned it, but like I say, once you get to watching it, there's so many iconic wrecks and all kinds of stuff going on that you forget about. You, you see the highlights of it, but you don't realize it was all in this one weekend. It's just like, when we do in the 1986 um, series shows as you're going race by race, there's a lot of things that you'll pick up in a race that the announcers say that you would have never remembered, but is just great content that um, we're going to try to put some video cl- audio clips uh, here in the show. I say we're going to try to put the video. If we can make the video go through the podcast, we'd be awesome. I think that if we could do video on YouTube and share my YouTube channel, that would be really cool. But I'm also afraid NASCAR would um, drop their hammer and put me in copyright infringement jail. So I really don't want to take that chance. Although the WWE, as of today, has yet to strike me dead over the Smoky Mountain wrestling content that I have on my channel. Somehow. They must not care. Don't tell them about that. Yeah, well, I don't think they really care about East Tennessee wrestling from the 1990s. I don't think my content there is going to move their needle one way or the other for the subscribers of their uh, multi-conglomerate channel. No, they just wanted Jericho and Sonny. That's all it is concerned about. <laughs> yeah, I think um, I think they got a little more than they bargained for with, with one of those two. But uh, this is yep. not a wrestling podcast. This is a uh, NASCAR podcast. So the, um, 1983 Daytona 500, we don't have the qualifying, uh, they don't have the qualifying coverage on YouTube, obviously, but we start with the Bush clash and in the Bush clash, the very first thing they're talking about is Kel Yarborough setting the record lap of over 200 miles an hour at Daytona on his first qualifying lap. Then his second qualifying lap, he tries to push it just a little bit more, and it don't quite work out. Yeah, and in uh, interviews later on, he always says he tried to lay into it just a little bit more, and then it got quiet, as he put it, when he flipped. <laughs> yeah, and I did. We have shared a picture on the um, on our page, our Facebook group page, showing Kale uh, looking out the passenger side window right as the car has lifted off the ground and you know 
he knew right then it's like, well, this isn't going to feel good. Yeah, just let go of everything, grab the seat belts, and hang on. Yeah, so um, we go over the qualifying crash. They take it up top. We've got Ken Squire, who has uh, A.J. Foyt and Richard Petty in the booth with him. Now, you would think A.J. Foyt, one of the biggest legends of IndyCar, uh, raced all kinds of different disciplines, sprint car hero, raced a lot of NASCAR. I mean, A.J. Foyt is the man's man when it comes to racing. Then you have NASCAR's king, Richard Petty, and you think, hey, this will be cool. But sometimes things on paper just don't work out as good as you think they're going to. Well, that, that was the bad part. I've never heard Foyt do play-by-play before, but the, Richard Petty was always a fairly colorful, you know, interviewer and all this other stuff. So you think, you know, okay, this is going to be great, but it ended up being Ken Squire and the weather guy from Family Guy. Yeah, and and right right away, um, they start talking about AJ Foyt letting Kel Yarborough borrow AJ's car. To shake it down for the 500 because Kale didn't have another car. He wasn't going to use the backup car that they were going to use for the 125s and 500 in the Bush Clash because then if he crashed that car, he was real. He would have been in trouble then. So AJ Foyt lets him borrow his car to shake it down, and I think Richard Petty kind of gives him just a little bit of a backhanded comment about he was ragging him a little bit about letting Kale drive that car and maybe it was maybe he was just trying to have fun with him I, but i kind of got the sense that it was a little bit of a jab maybe i'm wrong well well up to that point i mean they were talking and smiling and going on and then after that it was just radio silence it was in squire and the two mutes. yeah I, I, I don't know what exactly brought that on um anyway so the, i've got i'm not sure where to put these in our discussion, honestly, there are a couple of um, articles that I have posted on the Racing Through Time page of leading up to the Daytona 500, and um, I think, yeah, the one of them's when Kale wins the 500. There is an article that I thought was, uh, we'll talk about that after the race because it's actually post 500. There's also an article about Daryl Waltrip when we get into his issues in the 500 that I'll touch on this other article. So we'll go right into the uh, Bush clash. It's 20 laps, Andy, 20 laps, 50 miles, 50,000 to win. Uh, That's the way to do it. I mean, you don't have, now we're having the Bush clash at the LA Coliseum and they've got 20, I think they said 27 or 28 NASCAR Cup team drivers are eligible to go to LA and race in the clash. And it's so many heat races and then a last chance race and then another race. And that's all well and good. But I don't think that you can ever convince me that the Bush Clash or Bud Shootout or whatever it was called down through the years doesn't belong at Daytona. And that this is the right format. You want to make people want to see more racing. You don't want to give them a hundred laps in a bush clash with half the field. 
you want to give them 10 or 12 guys for 20 laps and be like, man, I can't wait until Thursday. Well, that's the reason why Daytona used to be, and it was a an event. It was like a two to three week event, and it just built and built and built up until the Daytona 500. And by that time, everybody's ready to go off. You know what I mean? It's just a little piece, and then a little bit more, and a little bit more, and then like I say, bam, we have the Daytona 500, and it's the biggest race in history. Yeah, I think they call that edging now. <laughs> oh, Lord. <laughs> But they're building up to the, the, the event. They're building up to the Daytona 500. So the Bush sure. Clash is the, is the, it's the, um, you know, it's the appetizer. Yeah. And it, it's more like, you know, it, it's like going to the dirt track on Saturday night, except as a bigger event. I mean, it's right. quick, it's ready to go. So we are going to have Bill Elliott in his 1982 Ford Thunderbird and Dell Earnhardt in his Wrangler Ford, Andy, his that Wrangler is, Ford. Sir, that, that's probably why I didn't potty train till I was five. This, this right here probably scarred me when I was little. Yeah. Uh, Dell Earnhardt. And I will talk about his interview later. Cause I think it's, I don't know if you'll pick up on the same thing that I did, but I think it's very interesting some of the wording he uses in 1983 driving the Budmore Ford Thunderbird. We don't talk about Budmore. No, no, no. Early in the race, Bill Elliott and Earnhardt's trying to pull away from the pack. Everybody else is in the pack behind them. Waltrip and Ron Bouchard um, past Tim Richmond because he's kind of holding the pack up a little bit. And I'm talking, we're talking just maybe three laps into this race, Bill Elliott and Dale Earnhardt are gone. They're like at least two seconds ahead of the rest of the pack. Yeah, they strapped the rocket to their hind ends and it's gone. Yeah, so Morgan Shepard is uh, smoking our 1986 hero, one of our new favorite drivers. When you go back and relive old NASCAR, um, he's having a problem like poor Morgan always seems to just Bad luck. Yeah, he he always runs so good and he qualifies so good, and you can tell he he's got the skills, but it, the equipment just always seems to fail on him. Yeah, there's always something that just gets in his way. Uh, then here in the race, early on in the race, we do have a big moment from Bobby Allison that we will bring to you right now. Morgan Shepard saying goodbye to this event. The Fords stay out in front as they come down to complete the fourth oh, lap. Oh, somebody's in the wall. Trouble coming out of turn four. Bobby Allison. Bobby Allison slams the wall. Bobby Allison, Chevrolet Monte Carlo destroyed, and for the first time in the five-year history of this event, there is a caution, and I believe it will go right to red. First time in the five-year history of the Bush Clash, there was a caution. That's kind yeah. of crazy it, it's amazing i mean you gotta figure they know they gotta go they can't hold back it ain't like during the 500 where they kind of ride along but they've got to go right then and this is the first time it's hard to believe it is hard to believe um allison hits this dirt bank uh, i mean they do put a retaining wall against it but i don't i don't know why it t- 
took Daytona so long to figure out that there really doesn't need to be a jut out right there where that was at because there was so many big wrecks through the years right there. And that's not the only one they're going to have over this weekend. No, and that's, that's what I was going to ask. How many cars just, I mean, in this one weekend hit that exact spot and nothing was ever done about it. And that's the other thing. You look at the track compared to what it is now and all the stuff they added to it and the pavement and it don't even look like the same set. No, no, it's, it's, it looks totally different. Obviously, thankfully they've made a lot of safety improvements since 1983 and Daytona is as safe as it's going to be. Yeah, at least there's a wall to keep you from going in the pond. I mean. Yeah, you know, we have seen cars uh, actually in Lake Lloyd, and I can't remember exactly the last time that happened, but it was either an ARCA or a bush race in the 90s. A car went over the dirt bank and into Lake Lloyd. Yeah, and that's like it's cold. I, I can speak from experience. Yes, you've you've swam Lake Lloyd, actually. That that was that was interesting. After you get about halfway in there, and wonder if a gate is going to come and get you. But okay. So back from commercial, uh, then we go to green. Seven laps complete in the race. There's a seven car breakaway with Bill Elliott, uh, Earnhardt, Waltrip, Neil Bond at the top four. Then you start to see a little bit of smoke coming out of the Budmore Ford, just a little bit. But it's it's starting, and it never goes away, and that will play into the finish of the race. Uh, Waltrip jumps inside of the three of Ricky Rudd and makes the pass, uh, and Earnhardt goes to third. Then we've got Waltrip, uh, Earnhardt, Bonnet, who all pass Bill Elliott, and Neil Bonnet almost crashes when he's passing Elliott, but he, he manages to save it. Yeah, and, these cars are the place. No. Yeah, the, the yeah the cars when they get side by side, Andy, is that what you're talking about there? They they were bouncing like ping pong balls up in there. Yeah, I mean, it looks like cars have hydraulics. I mean, they're literally bouncing up and down, almost coming off the track. So they're talking about um, Black Flag and Earnhardt as he continues to smoke. We've got Bodine in the 88. He wrecks out of turn four, but there's not a caution. We got a five-car breakaway. Um, eight laps to go. Terry Labonte moves out from fifth, trying to pass everybody. He gets by Buddy Baker, but has to settle in behind Earnhardt. Bill Elliott's in sixth by himself and closing on the pack. Now, this isn't 1985 quarters beer Bill Elliott fast, but you can see already in 1983 the boys from Dawsonville's figuring something out. Yeah, I mean, you can see who has the talent for this kind of racing, even if their equipment can't hang on. So we got four laps to go, a five-car lead pack, but Dell Earnhardt, he keeps getting black flagged. They're black flag. It's not like it is now where when they give you a black flag, they give you like two or three laps. They just, I guess they just kept throwing the black flag, and he wasn't coming in. So. We have the five-car pack, uh, Richard Petty and Foyt adding absolutely less than nothing to this event. I'm trying to find out any like clips that we could put in of them giving some kind of brilliant insight, but I mean, I think we're we're 
we're probably more likely to get high level insight from Al Trowig, and he's only on the Bush class for about 18 seconds. Yeah, I honestly can't think of a single a single phrase or statement that either one of them did. Now, I mean, when we did listen to that Allison clip, you hear Foyt going, oh, 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 he's wrecking, which, you know, just like the weather guy, it's raining, there's a wreck. So he at least did get excited about that. Well, I'm glad something got him excited. Ricky Rudd drops out of the race. We have... Dale Earnhardt getting inside of Terry Labonte for third, but they're losing the leaders. Anytime you get side by side, you got to, if you go back and watch these races, anytime you try to race side by side with those cars in 1983, you are losing, I don't know, two seconds a lap from a car by itself. Yeah. And that's what made it uh, interesting. Yeah. You'd have these breakaways. But the minute one of them stepped out, yeah, he could pass the guy in front of him with a slingshot. But while they were side by side, the pack catching up to him, you know, quickly. Yeah, I mean, this is honestly, I know it's trying to compare apples to freaking potatoes or something the way it is now. Because you have 43 cars or 40 cars basically in one big wad. And yes, there are cars that always seem to find their way to the front, but you really had to be strategic on when you made moves, where you made moves. Can you make it stick? The guys racing in this, this speed weeks, they had a handful of car. I mean, these cars were at the edge of out of control with no spoiler, as much horsepower as they could lay down on the track. And yeah, it made the racing more enjoyable, honestly, because you knew these guys were not like driving slot cars. They're driving on the edge out of control. Yeah, I mean, if you get a chance to go back and watch some of the end cars, they are they're turning the wheel to the right like there's a dirt track to turn it to the left. The cars bouncing. You can see their head flopping around because you know they didn't have the Hans device or nothing like that back then. So you can see how much it's beating them up every time they go around track. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So now we do have the white flag out. We'll let the Ken Squire bring you, bring you home. Second, closing rapidly. Can he make it? Terry Lamonti in that third spot. He is back in the lead draft. Out of turn number two. Earnhardt's right on him. What's hurting him real bad right now. Scoring to win the 75 pulls out is what the 44 can do. At 200 miles an hour, down the back straightaway. Gathering it up. Here comes Bonnet. He's going to make his move going into three. And on the outside comes 44. Bonnet is going out in front. On the outside, Labonte tries to get through. He's sideways. Oh, he hit. He gets hit. Hit. Goes in the wall. One, two, three automobiles. The leaders are charging for the finish line. Down out of turn number four come your leaders. And at the line, the winner of the clash is going to be Neil Bonnet. Waltrip will take second. And coming across in third is Bill Elliott. That was a wild last lap. Um, Neil Bonnet slingshots around Waltrip for the win. Uh, Labonte tried to pass Waltrip on the outside. He gets loose, hits the wall, slides down, hits Earnhardt. It collects Buddy Baker, and they're all out of the race. Daryl couldn't get back to Bonnet. Uh, so Bonnet takes home the $50,000. And Andy, I don't know what a driver is supposed to do 
with the cars in 1983 with the way they could slingshot, if you're in the lead, you're basically screwed. But at the same time, it, it seems like the guys that was in the lead never try to drop back from the lead and then get back to the lead. It's like they're there and they do the best they can. But those guys back then didn't throw these massive blocks that we see today because I'm sure they was afraid a massive block could lead to them being deceased. So it was a little bit more dangerous to throw those kind of blocks. But what was Waltrip supposed to do? I mean, he's leading down the backstretch, but he sees what's coming. Well, it's like watching the freight train come. If you're tied down to the tracks, you've got to hold what you got and hope they screw up. And this time it didn't happen that way. Yeah, I mean, he, he did try to pinch Bonnet a little bit lower, but Neil was able to hold the bottom. I guess the only thing is you're either hoping when they get inside of you that you hold them side by side until you get to the turn and they maybe can't hold it, or you hope they pass you quick enough to where you can maybe slingshot back around them out of four. I, I don't know. But um, you are a you are a real sitting duck when you're the leader with this kind of arrow package. Well, yeah, because you're not going to give up the lead, you know, willy-nilly, but at the same time, if like you said, if you're in the lead, you are the sitting duck. Yeah, so the... Um, so Neil Bonnet comes into victory lane. He wins the race. Uh, he says, I'll tell you what, this thing will run. And it did. I mean, he had a very good car. He wasn't even a pole winner from 1982. He gets in as a wild card, which I think, if I remember right, when we figured out what a wild card was in 1986, it's a it's the drivers that won second round qualifying and they put them all in a hat together and pick one of them. I, I think that's how he got in. Yeah. The rules have changed a lot over the years. It's weird. Yeah. I mean, now they don't even have first round qualifying half the time. They just line them up. And let's go. But uh, they did yeah. back then have, you know, they qualified on Friday and then they qualified again on Saturday. So, so Bonnet had, and he also had, um, Jake Elder is his crew chief back then. And so oh, suitcase, Jake, didn't matter where he was crew chief and at, those cars would always run. Yeah, and that's that's another one of the things that's uh, I think missing a lot from the sport is you two crew chiefs could do a lot more with without being on the edge of getting a hundred thousand dollar fine. You know, it was encouraged to innovate and think up new things, stretch the rule book. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you, you was always trying to find the next thing that you could uh, be a little faster than the, the guy in the garage beside of you. So the running order for the clash, uh, Neil Bonnet, Daryl Waltrip, Bill Elliott, Harry Gant, David Pearson. We didn't even talk about him. He was in the race. Uh, Ron Bouchard, Kel Yarborough, Tim Richmond, Bodine, Terry Labonte finished 10th, Buddy Baker, Dell Earnhardt, Ricky Rudd, Benny Parsons, Bobby Allison, Morgan Shepard uh, round out the field. And we do have a quick interview before we get to the 125s. I did want to play Earnhardt's interview here um, in the garage after the race. Well, here we got Dale Earnhardt, who had a pretty hectic race this afternoon. Dale, you had the black flag for a number of laps because you were leaving smoke. Did you see that black flag? Wasn't looking for it. I was looking for the checkers. <laughs> well, that's a good racing driver's answer. Then in the end, of course, you got involved in that terrific crash going into turn three there. What happened there? When we went into the corner and 
Lamont and I touched. I don't know whether I went got up into him or he got loose and got into me or what. But you know, is it, that started to wreck. Then the car started broke loose and started around, and I don't know who hit me after that. It's just a lot of smoke. Dale Earnhardt was later fined by NASCAR $10,000 for disobeying the black flag in the clash. The fifth clash will certainly be remembered as the most spectacular. Okay, so Earnhardt has a very good answer to that. When Hobbs asked him about the black flag, I wasn't looking for it. I was looking for the checkered. And then he just gives that shit-eating grin. And can you imagine, just imagine what Tom will agree a driver to be in nowadays if he'd done that right there on a national interview where everybody saw it. NASCAR would throw him under the bus. Oh, yeah. They would definitely not be too pleased with with something like that. So, Andy, we are uh, through the Bush Clash. Do you have any final thoughts on the Clash before we move to the twin 125s? No, I hate to harp on it, but shoot, David Hobbs said more than Teddy and Foyt did the whole race. Yeah, and he talked right there, what you just heard, a grand total of 55 seconds. All yeah, right, we yeah. will we will be right back. Um, the next, our next event here is the Twin 125s on the USA Cable Network. And now back for the 125s on the USA Cable Network. And Andy, the first thing we see is our old friend from 1986, Al Trowick. And my God, that's almost like a PTSD Vietnam flashback. Yes, uh, you can't get over it once you see it. Once you make the connection, it's, it's over with. And, beside, and aside from that, all the cars were covered up. The wind is howling. It looks like it's rained approximately 18 feet in Daytona over the past how many ever days? It's the clash because it is a mud bog. Yes, it, it ain't like it is right, uh, nowadays where they've got short hem paved, you know, except for the grass on the front stretch and, you know, the rest of it's pretty well paved. Now, this is just one big mud pit all the way around. Yeah, I mean, it looks like Woodstock, uh, 1999. Kind of like Talladega came over and took over. Something. Thank God Al Trowick's only on the screen for a few seconds before he kicks it to our good friend, Ken Squire. And there's 36 cars, Andy, in each race. There's not 36 cars at Daytona trying to make a 36 or a 40 car race. There's not, there are 36 cars in each of the 125s where only the top 14 get in. Um, through the 125s. Yeah, and nowadays they do good to have 36 to start the race period, let alone, you know, each of the qualifiers. And I'm fairly well-versed in NASCAR, as you know. And even me, hearing some of these names that Ken Squire's spitting out on the starting lineup, I'm like, are these real people? I don't I honestly thought that it was some kind of John Boy and Billy skit because I was waiting to hear like Sterling Trickle or Del McAlfard or something like that. Yeah, I mean, I, there's there's a lot of interesting names. Ricky Rudd inherits the pole for the Daytona 500, so he'll be on the pole for the first Twin 125 because 
with Yarborough crashing his primary car and not completing his run, it invalidated his whole time. So Rudd gets the pole by default. And Joe Rutman will be on the front row with Rudd. Daryl Waltrip uh, will start third. And uh, the seven car, Kyle Petty. Kyle Petty in the 7-Eleven car will start fourth. We start the race, and Ken Squire immediately says the cars are going into turn one like an avalanche. I thought that guy wrestled. I didn't know that a race car was an avalanche. Wait till the tsunami shows up. I must have missed that one. Waltrip and Elliott go 1-2 early in the race. Rudd has been taken three wide, and he backs out of it. And Rudd knows that he'll start on the pole of the 500 no matter what, as long as he doesn't wreck. So he's not going to do anything stupid. You hope. Three laps into the race, David Simcoe has blown his engine. Five laps in, Waltrip, Buddy Baker in the Wood Brothers car, Joe Rutman, Bill Elliott, and A.J. Foyt is fifth. The, the Foyt and Earnhardt were already a couple of seconds behind the lead pack, and they are catching the lead pack in a hurry. Waltrip takes a three wide down the back stretch with Rutman and um, Baker, and he gets the lead back. They're, I'm not going to sensationalize what happens next. I'm not even playing the the audio clip. Like I'm all about being as low down as I could be and having fun on this, but I'm not tap dancing on anybody's grave. If you want to watch the wreck, there's a bad wreck. Out of turn to Bruce Jacoby. Andy, that car seriously looked like a matchbox. And I have never, and I'll go back because somebody in our Racing Through Time group said they don't think they'd ever seen a car flip as high as he had. And I thought, surely, I remember a lot of these flips and thinking how high they was. And I thought Rusty Wallace at Daytona and Talladega was both massively high. Daryl Walter at Daytona, Davey Allison at Pocono, Ken Schrader at Talladega when he was driving the Budweiser car. And when you look at this wreck, they're not even close. I don't know how high that car flipped, but that car looked like it was thrown like a toy down the backstretch. Well, that's the bad part. When he when he does that little pirouette thing there toward the end, it he's high enough he could have cleared that bank and made you know, made it into Lake Lloyd. So that yeah. I I don't know, I ain't never seen one do nothing like it. Even you know, even when they've got up in the catch fence and stuff, they still wasn't this high. You could have drove yeah and that's not sensationalizing it you really could have driven a semi-truck i think under that where the car was up in the air it was like a pogo stick a couple of times the way it bounced um, yeah that's, that's how to explain it it looks like a pogo stick yeah because it's bouncing on like the top it's not like i mean it was barrel rolling but then it it was bouncing on the you know the the front end was touching the ground and going straight back up in the air. And we do find out, I mean, they, they work on getting him out of the car and I think you could tell they work for a while. You could tell the first safety workers that get there know that it's not good with the way they are scrambling, trying to get him out of the car. And, um, he is taken to 
infield care center. They immediately take him to Halifax. And he, from what I understand, never regained consciousness at all. Um, he was in a coma for four years and he passed away. Yeah. And, that, and like you say, you could, they show the wreck a couple of times during the broadcast and then that's it. And you don't see nothing else of the car until they're actually loading him up and taking him to the hospital. And that automatically lets you know something was bad. Baby. Yeah. And, um, so the, I have posted a few pictures on our group page of the car after the crash and um, the roll cage failed on the car. It, it crumpled and I, I safety standards wasn't as high in the eighties. He may have had an older car that had already been pieced back together. I don't know. And I don't know if that would have made a difference or not because the crash was already violent enough, but it certainly didn't help that the roll cage didn't hold up during the flips. Yeah, and we're not talking about, you know, it, it folded. It it catastrophically failed. Yeah. And and if you if you're if you're so inclined, you could actually find a couple of photos um where they pulled him out of the car with they have photos of him and you don't want to see him. I'll just I'll just say that. Um but they're out there. So if, if you really want to see them there, you could find them. So we have that big wreck and, um, Ken Squire said that, man, this is, this is another sad part about it. Jacoby came down to Daytona without a ride. He was wanting to work with CBS for the broadcast. And two days before the, uh, I guess two days before qualifying, he winds up with this ride. And then, then he has this, uh, this wreck. Yeah, and, and you really can't blame him because, I mean, if you're a race car driver, they told him nobody's going to pass that opportunity. No, no, no. I mean, they'd, he'd get in anything that would pass inspection. And, and anybody else who's down there would too. So. Um, they have a restart. There's 11 cars trying to pull away. 16 laps into this 50-lap race, you've got Waltrip, Earnhardt, Rutman, Kyle Petty, Buddy Baker's the top five. Uh, AJ Foyt keeps trying to work his way toward the front. He keeps dipping down in the low lane. He gets hung out. Nobody wants to work with him. I don't know if this is a um, NASCAR guys against IndyCar or guys are just afraid to get out of line. But I mean, it just nobody wanted to work with AJ except Dale Earnhardt in this 125. Yeah, and that kind of makes sense because Earnhardt didn't care who he worked with as long as he could win. But it, it might be that they just didn't want the open wheel guy being able to do anything. Yeah, you don't know the mentality, but uh, it did seem like nobody would go when AJ would pull out to make a move. There's a couple of slow cars on the infield in turn one. Uh, Dale McCower was one of the guys crashing, cautions out. Pit stops under caution, shuffles the restart order. The uh, three car of Rudd and Earnhardt are trying to push themselves away from the pack on the restart. And they're fighting hard, really hard from fifth to 10th. I mean, now this is one time that in that like second little pack, they were side by side by side, several rows deep, and it looked pretty hairy back there. Um, 
it looked like I could wreck it any second. Well, that's one of the good things we noticed about the older racing is there's good racing all the way through the field, whether it be at the lead, whether it be in the middle, whether it be the back runners, they're racing all the way through. Yeah, and you have to remember that especially here at Daytona for the 125, if you wasn't fast enough to get a um, one of the spots on speed, if if you had to fall back to a speed spot, you had to be in the top 14. So they re- and that's top 14 out of 36 cars. So these guys really didn't have the opportunity just to ride around and know that they're in the race anyway. A lot of those guys had no choice but to put it down, put the put it down to the floorboard and try to go as hard as they could ever lap. Yeah, or else you loaded up all your cars and spent all this money and you ain't even going to get a payday. Right. It's halfway. We get the chase pack has caught up to the three and the 15, and the chase pack was pulled by A.J. Foyt, who Ken Squire calls the giant. So we've already had the avalanche, I guess, or you're, we're going to have an avalanche. You say something about a tsunami. Ken Squire is talking about the giant. Rick Flair is just around the corner. I think Hacksaw Jim Douglas is going to make an appearance here in a little bit, but that's a whole other story. So Earnhardt blocks, but Foyt pulls under him and uh, Baker and and Rudd, and he gets the lead. So Foyt takes the lead, and um, now it's a. And, but Earnhardt was able to hold on to second. He held off the other guys that was coming with Foyt. So now we've got Foyt, Earnhardt, Waltrip, Baker, Kyle Petty, Rutman, and Rudd goes back to seventh. You get the next 10 or so laps, the leaders stay single file trying to figure out what to do. They all stay basically the same. Um, the 65 car, I don't even know who's driving it. You get to, He's coming into the pits. Andy, his pit sign looks like something that was drawn by the Toxic Avenger if he was high on ecstasy. Well, it was definitely something that should catch the driver's eye, that's for sure. Pit signs back then were not what they are now. Um, And that's another thing, watching all the sign guys actually run out on the pit road to wave them down, that that was crazy. Yeah, and when the guy does pull into the pits, you see the three or four guys, they've got service in the car, and it looks, honestly... Like they just walked out of janitorial services and the guy, they said, Hey, can you come over here and help us with this car? The, the pit crews back then were not except, I mean, the bigger teams did have legitimate looking pit crews, but these, some of these guys that were just uh, tire kickers trying to make the race, they just had guys in jeans and t-shirts or I get, yeah, they did have to at least have a shirt on. But uh, they weren't dressed uh, for NASCAR. No, it was probably cousins and brothers of cousins and even laws, just whoever they could grab off the street. More laps clicking off. Kyle Petty gets inside of Waltrip. They run side by side for a couple of laps. Petty can't get by him, so he has to fall in behind Waltrip. And that's where I made another note where it's when these cars get side by side, the lead cars can just get away. And you don't even have to, I mean, it's obviously better if there's more than one, you know, two or three cars in a pack, but even one car can run away from two cars side by side. 
Yeah, and then they got a bunch up together to try and run him down. Because, like I said, if they stay side by side, they'll never catch him. No, and the, and they know it's it's almost like they have to cut their losses and realize, well, it's going to even even drafting. It's going to take us several laps to catch back up because every pass you make in these races is a strategic move. It's not like I'll pull out and then if something happens, I'll get drop kicked to the back and I'll come back sweeping back up through here. It's like if I pull out and I don't make it work, we could lose the draft completely or I could lose the pack. And it's, you really had to be on top of your game and make every move count in a race like this. Yeah, because if you fall out and lose the pack, you're running by yourself, yes, but you ain't got no help, and you got to wait for them to start fighting up in front of you to even have a chance to catch up with them. But there's a lot of math going on there. Yeah, so we're inside of 10 laps to go, and here's another weird thing. Um, Larry Newber interviews Maurice Petty, and he's asking about Kyle, and he says that everybody's jockeying around, and Maurice Petty, just off the cuff, says Foyt may be in the lead now, but he can about guarantee that he won't win. Now, maybe it's just because the slingshot deals and knowing that the leader's a sitting duck. But it's almost like there's like a Hatfield-McCoy thing going on with the Petty and the Foyt, and I don't understand it. Well, I mean, in a way, it kind of makes sense because Foyt, in Indy cars, you know, they're synonymous. Petty and NASCAR synonymous. And you got Foyt coming down here in Petty's backyard. And maybe that was why they didn't do good in the booth the previous race. I don't know. Waltrip's car is slow. He drops out of the race. Um, it separates Kyle Petty and Rutman from the front three. But they're trying to run him back down. Squire then mentions that there was a French driver that was mad at AJ Foyt in the 24-hour race because he got in the Porsche for the last stint, thinking that Foyt couldn't drive in the rain. Then Ken Squire says, I don't know if this is true or not, but this is was said, that Foyt went on to win the race. I, I'm sure that's true. And he set the fastest lap of the race in the rain. Now, I can imagine A.J. Foyt being the all-American Texas hero that he is, and you've got some little French baguette boy who says, who says, put A.J. Foyt in the car for the last thing. I can see what A.J. would do. He'd be like, that son of a bitch is going to learn today. And he gets out there and he just blows it away. That is awesome. Well, we we're gonna teach him why the French women like us better. Whew. So yeah, super text indeed. Two laps to go. We've got Foyt in the lead, Earnhardt second, Buddy Baker, Kyle Petty, Ron Bouchard. They all stay in line for the white flag. Petty tries to pass Baker. He can't do anything. Um Earnhardt backs off of the fourteen down the back stretch, right as he comes out of two, you can see him get out of the gas just a little bit. And he backs everybody up behind him. Luckily, 
nobody pulled out on him when he did that because all it did was give him a bigger run to Foyt. And, and Foyt can't block the run that's coming from Earnhardt. So Earnhardt and Baker both blow by A.J. Foyt. Uh, Kyle Petty gets inside of him. You have Earnhardt blocking Baker to the line. He gets the win. Then it's Petty, Foyt, and Joe Rutman, the top five. Andy, I'm not going to – this has nothing to do with what you feel personally about Teresa Earnhardt. But when they do get into the interview with Victory Lane, it's a very odd scene with the way she, I don't know what's going on. It it looks like she's, you know, one of these people that's licking their lips, maybe kind of with their finger across their teeth a little. I'm not saying that there's anything going on. Maybe she's just excited, but it looked a little funny. That's all I'll say. You got to remember, Daytona happens in February. They they could possibly have snow down there. I don't know. I, mean, I, I, I mean, hate to say we're not. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of snow in Miami, and it's not too far from Daytona. No, you're only talking about a six-hour drive, and you know, if you find the snow there, you know, six hours ain't nothing. And not that we're implying anything at all. This is a parody no. show, and we are just... Uh, we are just observing. That's all we're doing. So <laughs> we, we go in. You want to do, is there anything you'd like to talk about uh, from the first 125? Well, I just had this thought. I, I realize now that why the French don't make good race car drivers. All their races yeah. only last one lap because they're used to the white flag. Very good. Um, I will say watching the first 125, Going into the 500, just watching that race, I legitimately thought A.J. Foyt, Earnhardt, and Kyle Petty all had the best cars in the first race. Oh, they were stout. Stout. Even though Ricky Rudd, and maybe he was being careful, but he doesn't show it in the 500 either. He never really was all that much of a factor. I don't, I think his car was good in a single run car. But in a pack, it just it wasn't the, it wasn't the same kind of car. Well, it's like you know, early in the race, he did real good. But like you say, once he got in all that turbulence, it's like it he couldn't handle it. Yeah. So we'll go on to the second one twenty five. We start the race. Jeff Bodine's on the pole for the second one twenty five. I don't know if this is we learned this at some point, and I read an article about it. Jeff Bodine's car owner had made some sort of bets with several people in the garage that Bodine would not only run over 200 miles an hour, but he would also win the pole and he would bet a thousand dollars to every person that would take him up on that bet. And, uh, I I think he lost a little bit of money just barely, but he did lose a little bit of money. I wonder if he had a new car owner the next year. We need to look this up. Yeah, actually, in 84, um, Bodine will be driving Rick Hendrick's car. The the 88, they're having those problems, and we have the 88 issues in 85 and 86 that we've talked about. So, yeah, this could have been the beginning of the end for the 88 right here. Neil Bonnet will start the race in second. Petty, 
Dick Brooks driving for Junie Donlevy in fourth. Tim Richmond, Lake Speed, Rusty Wallace, Sterling Marlin, Benny Parsons, Jody Ridley. Uh, Terry Labonte's car won't even start, so he's out of the race before it even begins. Luckily, he had a good enough qualifying time where he's going to still be in the race. Um, early in this race, Bodine Petty pulling away from the pack. Then there's a crash down the back stretch with Jerry Bowman and Alan J. West. Don't, don't know too much about either one of those guys. Do know Tom Sneva from IndyCar Racing. He spins. Looks like there might have been oil on the track. You see the there's a 46 car out there that has Morgan McClure as a sponsor who will go on to be team owners of uh, Ernie Irvin in the, in the iconic Kodak number four car. Restart lap 10. You've got Bodine, Petty, Neil Bonnet, Tim Richmond, and Dick Brooks. Bobby Allison, uh, yeah, he, um, he had crashed his primary car in practice. Then he wrecked the car in the Bush Clash. And he's on his third car, and um, he's moving up to the field, though. He's not he, – he needed to race his way in with uh, the things that happened, and he's not having a problem with that so far. You've well, got – Not only that, he's going to have to race good just to make up his money from the cars. Yeah, yeah. He's already in the hole. You click off some laps, you get Petty and Bonnet slingshot by Jeff Bodine take the top two spots tim richmond goes to third sterling marlin in the pits likely out of the race there's five car lead pack six car chase pack uh bobby allison coming through the field he makes a pit stop by himself but they said that it's a planned stop and they decided to change uh right side tires and he goes a lap down it he had some issues i know it took a long time to change tires back then but he was having some big problems um as he went a lap down. You have yeah, Petty on... Yeah, go ahead. They tried to go backwards on it. What was it? They changed the left, and then, then they went to the right, or they, it, was, it looked like a cluster. Yeah, they had an issue. I don't know what all was happening, but he, he goes a lap down. Uh, Richard Petty, Neil Bonnet, and um, <clears throat> the 88 of Bodine trying to pull away from the pack. There's a wreck on the back stretch. Uh, Daryl Sage is in the wall. And the caution's out. 18 laps in, pitting. Squire calls it feeding time for the elephants. Getting ready. We go back to green. Bobby Allison trying to get his lap back. Tom Sneva was in the lead. Uh, but then Yarborough wastes no time in getting to the lead. Sneva drops fast. You've got Petty and Richmond, who were back in 18th and 19th because they took tires. They're trying to come up through the field. So this that caution messed everything up. Everybody's all jumbled right here. Yeah, some took two, some took four, some ain't even got in there yet. It was a mess. Allison got his lap back um, and gets by Yarborough. Bonnet gives Allison a shot going into turn three, but Bobby hangs on. One lap later, you have Bonnet. And uh, Kel Yarborough backed by Bobby Allison. You've got a four-car lead pack. And then the next five or six cars are really spread out. Like, this is really spread out. You've got halfway. Bonnet still leads. Yarborough second. 
Bobby Allison is the third car in line, but he's not third. And Jeff Bodine. Richard Petty is moving through the pack. He's got away from Richmond. Then you have a, another big crash on the back stretch. This, not a whole lot dissimilar from uh, Bruce Jacoby's wreck. This is Rusty Wallace in the 72. And Andy, I've seen plenty of um, NASCAR flip compilations over the years, and I swear I don't remember this wreck until I saw it the other day. I saw it, and I'm, I'm, I was trying to remember, and it's one of those I've never, I, if I've ever seen it before, I don't remember. It, it yeah. caught me off. And it was a it was a big wreck too. I mean, he really he really ate it. There was, and there's pictures of them pulling him out of the car, and he or walking with Rusty once he gets out of the car, and he looks the lights was on and nobody was home. I mean, he was out on his feet. That was back before we knew about concussions. They just called it getting his bell rung. Yeah, he he had his bell rung. <laughs> that. By flipping down the backstretch approximately eight times. You go back to green um, on lap 33. Richard Petty's up to seventh. You've still got Bonnet, Yarborough, Bodine, Brooks, and now Petty's the top five. Ten cars in the lead pack. Dick Brooks makes a move for fourth, but he didn't make it. He slides to the end of the pack. Richard Petty up to third. He's really fast. Goes under the 28 and the 75 and passes both of them to get the lead. Now, Andy, it's hard. I mean, it's you can slingshot past one guy, but it's really tough to slingshot past two of them. And Richard Petty's car was stout. Well, I think that's something we forget about, you know, because uh, people my age grew up towards the end of his career. Right here, it shows Petty was still, I mean, his whole team was still stout at this point, and he could still drive it. Oh, yeah. I mean, this is, he's still not looked at as quite over the hill yet. He's just looked at as, he's still a dangerous threat anytime he's in the car. There's a cut-in with seven laps to go. Richard Petty's still in the lead. Bonnet are the top two. Then you have Allison, who's a lap down. Yarborough's next. Then you've got um, Bodine Brooks. And then the rest of the drivers are losing the pack. So all those guys are, they're running away. Three to go. The order's basically still the same. Two to go. They start moving around a little bit, trying to figure if they're going to make any moves, but they stay in line. Then uh, white flag lap. Bonnet gets by the 43 going into three, clears him. Neil Bonnet holds on at the line. Uh, Petty second, Yarborough third, Brooks fourth, and Mark Martin in the number two car in 1983, driving for J.D. Stacy, finishes fifth. Hard to think of Mark Martin as the fucking young kid. Yeah, the kid, Mark Martin, in the J.D. Stacy car, too. Uh, well, J.D. Stacy, notorious for his NASCAR run over the of those few years in the early eighties. I know, I think it's in the 500 broadcast. They mentioned that he had seven cars down there in 1982 and he's down to one here in 1983. This is about the end of good old JD Stacy. Something happened. <laughs> yeah. Found out the checks wasn't clearing. 
Uh, Del or Ned, Ned, Ned Jarrett talks to Bonnet after they finally get the window net down. They go to Newber. He's at the infield care center. He's with James Hilton, who gives an update on Rusty. He said he's battered, but he's going to be okay. So, Andy, we now have made it through both 125s of the second race. I don't think it was quite as good as the first 125. But in the second one, did, did anybody really stick out? I mean, Yarborough finishes near the front, but it, nothing was real spectacular. I thought that Bonnet and Petty, myself, I thought that they were clearly the best two cars. Yeah, Petty, Petty was really strong. And like I say, when you're doing the qualifying races, you don't know who really has the stoutest car or, and who's really just, you know, laying back, getting just good enough to get in. So that's, we've got the twin 125s in the book. We will turn this around here in just a second. We'll be right back for this year's running of the 1983 Daytona 500. And now the 1983 Daytona 500. The very first thing, Andy, that I want to talk about here is you've got David, um, David Hobbs in the booth with Ken Squire. And I was going to just kind of try to recap what Hobbs said. But I think this is actually worth listening to. He hits a couple of really good points that we're going to start off with uh, David Hobbs in his introduction of the 1983 Daytona 500. The weather. The weather was raining a lot. The drivers didn't get much practice. The track was always in a green state. The groove, the racing groove kept getting washed away. And we had a rash of accidents, which included some of the giants of racing. But the other consideration is money. This is the most visible form of motorsport in the world now, with about two and a half million spectators plus a huge TV audience. This has attracted many sponsorships from all over this country, and so we have a lot more really competitive machinery. The fact is that we now have 30 people that could win this race, whereas the last decade, quite frankly, only about three or four drivers used to win all the races. Now we've got new winners practically every week. The thing we have to ask ourselves, we've got 42 cars, there's less than 10 miles an hour across the grid. 20 years ago, these cars had a 20 mile an hour spread, are there 42 cars, and 42 drivers rather, out there capable of driving these cars at over 190 miles an hour? The other thing that's happened is that technically these cars really aren't so much different to what they were 15 years ago. If you look under the hood, under the skin, the car looks pretty much the same. But there's been great detail improvements, and these cars are speeded up from around about 175 to nearly 200 miles an hour, and they really are on the ragged edge. So we must ask ourselves, is it now time to slow these cars down a little bit before they get too fast on these super speedways? Ken? Stand by, we'll be taking... Okay, Andy, I thought David Hobbs made like three or four really good points just in a little bit of a little soliloquy there before he throws it back to Ken Squire. Uh, Yeah, it was almost like a psychic friends network type thing. I mean, he might as well just come out and said, cue the plates because they're, they're coming. Yeah, I mean, he's he's talking about slowing the cars down. He's also talking about the cars, I think, without just coming out right out and saying it, that they're not as safe as they probably should be, that they're basically the same that they was 20 years ago, but now they're going a lot faster. And he even mentions that, are there 42 drivers that's capable of driving the cars this fast now, which in today's world, there's so many guys out there 
but you could obviously say there's probably a hundred, 150 guys or drivers. There's, there's some women drivers that are pretty good too. There's a hundred, 150 drivers out there that could probably compete at top levels of any motorsports easily. Oh yeah. I mean, just look right now, we've got three major series and then underneath that, you've got a couple of, you know, the minor leagues, you might say. And then you've got the dirt track. You've got people all through the country that can race now and where it's spread out to places with better climates. They can race year-round, so they're constantly getting practice as they come up through the carts and, you know, the midgets and all that stuff. So, yeah, we've, we've got a ton more qualified, I guess you call it, race drivers now. Yeah, and I think technology's got a lot to do with that. Um, our racing. You get you can get on our racing as a kid and learn all these tracks, learn how cars drive. You know, you can know these tracks before you ever actually go to them and and know where the bumps are and know where the limits of the cars are. You you get these kids that um grew up sim racing that can literally jump in a uh stock car, maybe not NASCAR right off the bat but they could jump in an ARCA car and be really competitive. Well, you, you got to look at not, I mean, even say 10, 15 years ago, the NASCAR, the big budget teams, they would have multi-million dollar simulators. And now, like you say, you can do the same thing at your house with a computer and a stimulator. Yeah. Um, okay. The next thing I want to touch on, and I really, try not to compare today's racing all that much to racing from the eighties, because I guess any decade you grow up with or grow up in is the decade you're going to feel like has the best racing. I honestly feel like maybe a 10 year period of the eighties and nineties had the best racing, but that that's all. That's what we grew up with too. But besides the racing itself, the presentation. I don't think that today's racing has the same kind of presentation that it did back then. We got all the bells and whistles in the world. We have 4K, 8K, 12K, whatever cameras and beautiful screenshots. And you, you know everything that's going on at all times. You got real time telemetry. But I went back. Cause I thought maybe I'm just trying to be, maybe I'm just biased. I went back to this last year's Daytona 500 and watched how they announced starting lineup. And I'm not wrong. Go back and watch this year's Daytona 500. Watch how they do the starting lineup, the grid and tell me with a straight face that it's better than what I'm about to play right now. In row number one, the pole, a record for Chevrolet driver, Virginia's Ricky Rudd at 198 miles an hour. The pride of Chemung, New York, Jeff Bodine in a Pontiac beside him. Row two, in the 1982 Ford, 83-4, Ford, the Grand National Champion Dale Earnhardt of 80, and the Renegade from Alabama in a Chevrolet, Neil Bonnet. Row number three will be the 1980 champion, Buddy Baker and Richard Petty. Going to row four. Richard Sun Kyle and two-time 500 winner Kelly Yarborough. Row 5, 1972 Daytona winner A.J. Boyd and Richard Brooks. 
In row six, California's Joe Ruttman and Indiana's Mark Martin. Row seven, the bandit, Harry Gann, and the 75 champion, Benny Parsons. In row eight, the Silver Fox, 76 winner, David Pearson, and Mississippi's Lake Speed. Row nine is Bill Elliott and Jody Ridley, both from Georgia. In row number 10, Elliott Forbes Robinson of California, Wisconsin's Jim Sauter. Hey, Andy. I don't know. Maybe <laughs> it's nostalgia. Does that not get you, like, the music, the get you pumped up? Squire gives just enough information about some of the guys without going overboard. Calls Neil Bonnet's the renegade from Alabama. It really well, sets a tone. Well, it does. And the other thing is, NASCAR was always different. Than, and then I go back to the AJ Foyt thing, but NASCAR was always different than the early racing series because this is ours. This is America's. We own this. Nobody else. And one of the things, and I know it's a trivial thing, but one of the things I hate about the modern racing is when they start going, well, instead of he got first place, you know, oh, he won, he two, he three. And I I know, tell us about the driver. Tell us, give us something to root for, not just the name and P3. Yeah, and today, like the this year's Daytona 500, when I went back to watch it, they're doing the starting grid as they're rolling around on the track already on the pace lap. So they're kind of in a hurry trying to do it quick. But of course we got to jump into an in-car driver and talk to the drivers during the driver inter- during the um, starting lineup. It's just, it's like they've lost some of the special, what made Daytona special. Yeah. I mean, you, you don't have to do all some of the best Daytona footage that I love the most isn't the 4K or 12K or whatever with, you know, zoom in. No, I want to see like the view from the blimp where you see the whole backstretch. You see how fast the cars are closing in and backing up. You know, it's just because you have the technology don't mean you have to. Yeah, and and now that and I know we I know we've talked about this on our eighty six shows. The camera angles they use now, they shoot this crap so tight that even at Daytona and Talladega, you're usually seeing like three or four cars on the screen. They look beautiful. You, you yeah. can make out every detail of the sponsor, but when you're at Daytona and Talladega, especially, you want to see the wide shot to see how the pack's moving, who's moving up and down, how. And they get everything so tight now you can't see. Like you should be able to see a million times better, and you can't see anything. Well, that's like right now, you know, in in this race that we watch, you can watch the first pack come out of the turn, and before they leave camera view, the second pack coming out of the turn, and you see how far away they are, whether they're closing. I don't know. It just seems like you have more. More information in less detail, and now you've got more detail and less information. That's actually a good way to put it. Um, oh, yeah. So once we do get to the picture, I don't go that far in the starting lineup, of Sterling Marlin. First of all, they have him down as Sterling Marlin without the G, but Andy, that's not the only thing missing. No, he kind of looks like a monk. 
Like a punk? No, a monk. You know, one of the little friars, you know. Oh, like, a monk. Friar. Yeah, a monk. Gotcha. Yeah, I was about to say, I don't think anybody's ever called Sterling Marlin a punk. <laughs> I don't know. They probably called him that when he's pulling the fender out, but okay. No, maybe. But, um, so Marlin, obviously one of the two drivers in NASCAR that we know about that was that wore a toupee. I'll, I'm going to say this right now. I have nothing against Sterling Marlin at all. I've always liked him. He's from Tennessee. He's a good dude. You know, some people are just a little more sensitive about certain things than others. I shave my head. I have, I think I've still got hair. I just shave my head because I think it's convenient. Um, Sterling was definitely mostly follically challenged in the picture they show. And I knew about this from back in the day. And I don't think, you know, now in 2022, almost 2023, you can know everything about every driver that ever existed and see all these old pictures. But I mean, I think it, a lot of the people didn't real, don't remember Sterling before, you know, he got the hair transplant. <laughs> so I am at a UT football game. Sterling's a huge Tennessee volunteer fan. I'm at a UT football game in the, early two thousands. It's either the last game of the year or next to last game against Kentucky. I'm in the end zone with my brother-in-law. We see Sterling Marlin walking around the concourse right below us. And he's on, he's basically on the field coming up into wherever he was going to be in the stands. I don't know. And the wind was howling and his hair was flopping around a little bit. And my just being an asshole yells down there to him. Hey, Sterling, don't let your toupee blow off. A lot of people around me thought that was funny. A lot of people had no idea who it was. I can tell you one person that did not think that was funny. That would be one Sterling Marlin who for about three seconds, I honestly thought, I was going to be able to tell the story the next day that Sterling Marlin whipped my ass at a UT football game because he was coming and then something changed his mind, but he was coming to have a talk with me. <laughs> and, he, probably, he probably realized that he couldn't afford the suit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wasn't looking for, for, tr- I was just being a, I was just being a butthead and I'll admit it. And I'll give Sterling a lot of credit because he could have came up there and, and tore me up. And I'm, I know that he thought about it, but he did, uh, he did pass up that opportunity. So there's my Sterling Marlin story and almost getting beaten up by a pseudo celebrity. It, it would have made a better story though, but yeah, I'm glad you didn't get the <laughs> It would have been a better story if, if he had have came up there and whipped my ass. Um, 500 green flags out the video quality on both the videos on YouTube is pretty bad. Um, one of the videos is much longer than the other that uh, didn't trim the race down. So that's the one I mostly watched. We have Ricky red leads lap one. Um, Earnhardt second bonnet third, Petty fourth. Obviously in the first few laps, there's going to be a lot of moving around. They keep leapfrogging each other. Petty goes to the front for a while. Earnhardt to the front. Kyle Petty to the front. Nine laps in the race, seven lead changes. Oh, they didn't pass back then. 
There was only yeah, three cars. There's only three cars that was even, you know, that could even race. Everybody else was, they just was two laps down in the 10th lap. Uh, yeah, the yeah. were at 10th lap by the time they hit midway. Yeah. It wasn't <laughs> 15 laps in the race. Now you have Joe Rutman in the lead. Richard Petty second. Bodine third. Yarborough fourth. Kyle Petty top five. Benny Parsons already in the garage. He said he lost a cylinder, and then he lost another one. Obviously, <laughs> then he, I guess he's more like, I ain't racing around here on six cylinders, so he parked it. He tells Ned that he may just hit him in the nose. That's about how mad he was. Now, that would have been another sight in 1983 yeah. for Benny Parsons to attack Ned Jarrett unprovoked. Yeah, what did poor old Ned do? He didn't even do a thing. He didn't put his car together. No. There's a lot of passing up front. There's about 10 cars in the lead pack. Dick Brooks in the Judy Donlevy car takes the lead. This this is an epiphany for me, Andy. I knew Dick Brooks had won a race or two. I knew that he was a good hand. Um, He was toward the end of his career here. And this is Junie Donlevy's car, which never was great, never was horrible. But here, in this Daytona 500, I think had the second best car of anybody in this entire race. He, it's one of the things where you watch the race and you're like, who, him? How'd he get there? Yeah, it, I don't know. It it was unique. It was unique race. Uh, Tim Richmond drops out of the race. Um, he cracked the head. Richard Petty with Dick Brooks, Kyle Petty all together with uh, about five more chasing them down. You get 30 laps into the race. There's a commercial. They come back. AJ Foyt's in the pits from 10th. They never really said why he was in the pits. Um, Earnhardt in the pits from, oh, this has started. He just pitted a little early. Uh, this was the start of green flag stops. Elliot Forbes Robinson blows up down the backstretch. There's no caution. There's a wreck in the pits. Bosco Lowe has crashed. Ned Jarrett gets an interview with him right after he crashes. He says that he caught the grass with the right rear. It caused him to spin out. Jarrett asked if he's coming back out, and he said he didn't know. Now, Andy, that car wouldn't beat up too bad. Maybe he didn't really have another reason to go back out there, but he almost wiped out an entire section of crew. I wonder if NASCAR just said, hey, Bosco, maybe you should pack it in for the rest of the day. You know, you had the comments from Hobbs to start with, and then you see this, and that's another thing I can't get hope. I mean, I know they did it, and I know I've seen it growing up, but when they're coming down pit road, hundred mile an hour, and then guys up there with no protective equipment whatsoever, you, you're just like, how in the world didn't they kill more people than what ended up getting hurt? Yeah, yeah, that's I just that's actually a testament to how good these guys was and how brave the pit crews was. Yeah, heavy, heavy balls. They carried them in their wheelbarrow. They're really spread out now after the pit stops. I mean, before the pit stops, there was 10, 12 cars relatively close together. But these pit stops with the way that now this was one of the things because some pit crews were good. Some weren't as good. And you would have like a four to six second 
gap of some guys with their pit stops. So this really spreads the whole field out. Richard yeah, Petty's, good, yeah. Yeah. That's, I mean, Richard Petty, he's out front, but he's got a really good pit crew. Oh yeah. Cause it, it ain't like the, well, the one thing that I've noticed more than anything, Jack, you know, nowadays they've got the jacks for three pumps. The cars off the ground. They're taking tires. These guys are sitting there with just a regular old, probably, the equivalent of Harbor Freight Jack now pumping that sucker about 20 times just to get it up off the ground so they can change the tires. That's yeah. one of the biggest things I noticed. So they're they're really spread out. Um, Daryl Waltrip's a lap down somehow. Uh, Jeff Bodine's also a lap down. He, sh- he had really messed his tire up. And uh, then David Hobbs says, Bodine was setting a blistering pace. And Hobbs thinks he's funny. Ken Squire don't buy it or sell it at all. <laughs> he just ignores him. He's the straight man. Yeah, I'm not going there. Larry Newber in the pits with Waltrip, or with of the crew of Waltrip, and uh, Junior Johnson nor uh, Crew Chief Hammond knows what's wrong with Waltrip's car. He's not said anything. Obviously, he was just, I guess, irritated about something. Because when they don't know, you're a lap down and they don't even know why, that's a little strange. Especially for somebody that talks as much as Daryl. Or maybe he was saying things, they just couldn't repeat what he was saying at the time. That's possible, and I guess it's, maybe it's also possible that his radio wasn't working, and they just don't know it. Well, that happened a lot during this, this time period, too, so that's possible. They go to commercial, and they come back, and damn it, Richard Petty has blown up. And he, he arguably had one of the top three or four cars there too. And, uh, he's blown up. He's out of the race. Uh, he goes straight behind the wall, 50 laps in 15 cars on the lead lap. New leader, Dick Brooks, vice once president. Again. Oh, go ahead. No, no, I'm just saying he's back up there once again. Yeah. Yeah. Brooks back on the front. Vice President George Bush watching from the tower. Now this isn't George, you know the the the. It's this is George H. W. Bush, who was the vice president at the time. Um, we have Brooks that has Bonnet right with him. They're racing for the lead. Rutman third, Earnhardt fourth, Bill Elliott the top five. Bill Parsons blows up, spins close to turn one, cautions out. <clears throat> Ned Jarrett talks to Petty. There's not really, I'm not going to play that. There's not a whole lot that was said there. Richard just wasn't happy. But then we're, we'll, I will play this uh, first interview that Squire gets with Cal Yarborough um, under this caution. Cal, can you hear us? Ken Squire to CBS booth. That's affirmative, Ken. I hear you. How's it going out there? Well, it's been a pretty good race so far, a pretty clean race. Uh, I've had a little bit of problems. My car got a little loose to begin with, but I believe we got it nailed down pretty good now. What's the wind doing to you? Well, the wind's blowing in uh, gust every now and then. It's catching you and moving your car around a little bit, but it's not real bad. Well, as you line up, I see number 98, Rutman's right in front of you. You're going to try to gun him down immediately? You're going to hold and float with him? Well, I'm going to try to take the lead for a little while now. I've been sitting back a little bit, and I need to see what I can do. You're fourth right now, Cale. You're going to go for the lead on the restart. Well, we're going to go for it as soon as we can get it. I don't know whether I can do it the first lap or not, but we're going for it. Well, we'll be with you. Okay. 
Bailey Yarborough. Ken Squire point blank says that Kelly Yarborough is going to gun down Joe Rutman. Now that's an effective way to to get around somebody in a NASCAR race. Yeah, I don't think that kind of verbiage would fly nowadays, but you know, it fits the time. And I know that it's an older video, so it's a little garbled, but I think it's hilarious with all the technology we've got now that they have such a hard time sometimes talking to drivers. And when they're on another side of the track, they lose signal. This was crystal clear between there was no breakups. There was no garbledy crap. You Squire could hear Bonnet. I mean, Squire could hear Yarborough. Yarborough could hear Squire. And now you've got all this technology and half the time they they can't get the right channel to the driver or when they do talk to him, he's getting stepped on by his crew chief and you can't hear it or they just lose signal completely. Well, I, this is something I wondered about this when I was looking at Kale's helmet. Did I, I don't know. Did they have two separate radios? Cause I noticed on his helmet, he had two different microphones and I, and I don't have, know. I don't know if it's a backup or one was for the broadcast, one for, for his team or what. But maybe that had something to do with it. Homework assignment. Yeah, you got to figure that out. Um, they go back to green, and it don't take long after the restart. Yarbrough said what he was going to do. He called the shot. He jumps into the lead. Dick Brooks. He jumps into the lead temporarily. Dick Brooks gets back by him for the lead. They go to a commercial break, and right as they come back, Dale Earnhardt. His Ford is now blowing up and uh, just past the start finish line. Then I'll just play what happens next. seem to be racing. Here's Richard Brooks coming down the line. And here's one car trying to get in front of him. Oh, oh in trouble. That's Darrell Waltrip. Waltrip. Out of control. He slams the wall. He's going to get the and he almost nails Yarborough. I don't understand. He may have been trying to make up a lap. I think he was trying That's to make exactly up a lap. That's exactly what it was. Yep. Darrell Waltrip was trying to make up a lap. And so was Lake Speed in the number one car. Lake Speed was the one who set all that off. Kale Yarbrough and the other three guys had decided to settle for their positions and they came round to the flag, but the heroes running a lap down and decided to make it back. Let's talk to Kale Yarbrough. Kale Yarbrough, can you hear us? I hear you, Ken. Go ahead. Looked like that. Did you think that a number 11 car was going to take you out? I, I didn't miss him by about an inch. That was mighty close. Have you ever had one closer that you got away from? I don't think so. That's pretty close. What happened out there, Kale? It looked like you had slowed down and they were trying to make up a lap. Yeah, I slowed down and I don't know what happened to Waltrip. He was on the straightaway here and just turned sideways. I don't really know what happened. We're taking a look in replay right now at what happened. And he actually came off too hot. He tried to miss Richard Brooks, hit the brakes. Brooks was directly in front of him. The car lifts. The guy that caused all the trouble there basically was Lake Speed, though, who got in front, who came down under Dick Brooks, pushed him way up which probably caused Richard Brooks to lift out. Darrell Waltrip was catching Richard Brooks hand over fist, and suddenly the track's all blocked. But that's that old business about racing back to the line again, David. Exactly. I just, I just cannot see the sense in it. I really can't. I've, I've said it before, and the NASCAR officials argue, and I just, to me, it, it's a totally erroneous way to go about things. Darrell Waltrip is... So this is Darrell Waltrip's famous crash that you see a lot from 83 where he 
tries to miss Dick Brooks, hits the inside wall where Allison hit it um, in the clash. And I mean, he just pounded it uh, right, you know, with the driver's side, slam, slides back up the track. He destroyed that car. Yeah, that that was one of the roughest tricks I've ever seen him take. Cause he hits it. Well, you can see a railroad cross tie come back across the track with him that he dislodged from the bank. It, it is how hard he hit it. And it's a wonder if he if somebody else would have hit him after that, uh, there ain't no telling what would happen. Yes. Yeah. Cause he's sliding back up across the track driver's side, uh, facing the pack coming back at him. I, now David Hobbs squarely lays the blame down on Lake speed shoulders. Um, I was watching it and I really didn't see the speed did anything wrong. Uh, oh, he was trying to race back to the line too. Yeah. I had I don't know I'm I I have conflicting feelings about that. It, they on one hand I like for them to race back to for position to the line that way everybody knows where the final say is. But at the same time, you always had stuff like this happen on people getting wrecked and hurt for no reason. So it's kind of one of them catch twenty twos. Yeah, I mean, I, d- I don't disagree with them freezing the field when you see stuff like you just saw right there. Um, I will say that in, if not, in modern NASCAR, what they should do, if it was me, is even if the caution comes out on the last lap, you give another green-white checker. Give the fan, like if they're going to stay there the whole race, don't ever end the race under caution unless it's rained out or something stupid. Like even if the even if the wreck happens on the last lap, and NASCAR feels like they got to throw a caution, fine, give them a green white checker. What's the difference in in doing it if it's a white flag or the two laps to go, or if it's a white flag? That's the only thing that I think that they could improve on with that. I don't disagree with them freezing the field when you see something like this happen. No, because, well, like I say, if it's, the, to me, the last lap, especially a place as big as Daytona or Talladega, if a wreck happened on the back stretch, let them finish. You know, let them race the line. That's not going to hurt nothing. Nobody's going to be in the way. You know, get, give them a chance to finish it. You know, let the fastest race car win at this point. Yeah. Now, David Hobbs also, I mean, he he brings up the fact that he he's talked to NASCAR and he just shakes his head. He does not know why they uh, they let him race back to the line. You could tell David Hobbs was a big proponent of safety um, coming from the Formula One world and all the deaths they had in the 60s and 70s. You know, you're just trying to hope that Racing will be safer for the guys out there. And then he shows up here, and this is like the backwoods version of racing, I guess, compared to what he came from. Yeah, so I was debating on when to um, actually talk about this this one article 
but I think now would probably be an appropriate time. This is an article from uh, the Columbia, South Carolina State paper from uh, a couple of weeks after the Daytona 500. And I'm not going to read the whole article, but it's it's basically uh, an article by Teddy Hefner. And the title of it says, Love Him or Hate Him, There's No Middle Ground for Waltrip in the Eyes of Racing Fans. And this is an article talking about how after this Daytona wreck, the next week when they go to Richmond, this guy notices that Waltrip gets a lot more cheers than he ever had before. And this wreck here was really his beginning of the face turn of Daryl Waltrip. If you want to put it in wrestling terminology, this is when Waltrip goes from the hated Jaws character to good old DW. Yeah. You know, before this, he's the brass running his mouth. You know, back at a time when that was not looked favorably on, you know, like it sometimes is today. And then this wreck, and when he comes back from it, after as hard as he hit that, yeah, it's easy to turn him face after that one. Yeah, so, and it's it's honestly almost like a, this is a direct comparison in my mind. Almost Kyle Bush, a guy that the people could not stand in NASCAR for years. And then he had the bad wreck at Daytona himself, breaks both of his feet out half the year. And he's still, even back, even when that happened, he was still booed more. But now Kyle Bush going to Richard Childress Racing, um, linking up with Dell Earnhardt's old team. I can see Kyle Busch possibly being the most popular driver in NASCAR this year. Uh, that's a bold statement there. Well, I'm just saying he's moving moving back to Chevy. He's a little bit older. He don't run his mouth like he used to. I think there's a lot of comparisons you can make between him and Walter. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, and there's there's a lot more people that uh, or a lot more drivers that people hate worse than him. So I guess he moves up in comparison. Yeah, maybe. Uh, Dale Earnhardt was interviewed. He said that the bearings were coming out of his engine. Hopes that Daryl's okay. Said that he didn't think anybody hit his oil because he didn't start really smoking um, until after the start finish line. And and yeah, Waltrip didn't. He didn't hit oil. He just he was trying not to kill Dick Brooks. And yeah, and uh, took a hard left. So uh, Junior Johnson says Daryl's left, or told the paramedics to tell Stevie that he's okay. He shook up, but he don't really know what happened. You got Harry Gant in the garage with Ned Jarrett. He he said that a bolt went through the radiator from another car and cracked the head. That there's another one, Andy Harry Gant with notorious bad luck. Yeah, except for one stretch in October. Yeah, he always had bad luck somehow. Yeah, we may we may cover his October stretch as a special series sometime. That'd be kind of cool because now we know a little bit more about how he was doing that, which would be very interesting to talk about. Uh, Ned says Jeff Hammond said Daryl's okay. He's going to have chest X-rays. Seventy-two laps into the race, 
they have had nine leaders in 22 lead changes. Joe Rutman, they point out, has a computer in his pits that's calculating miles per gallon for fuel usage. But now the car is a computer. Back then, it was a big deal to have a computer in the pits. Now the whole damn car is a computer. Yeah, what well, I mean, every, everything's computerized now. I mean, there's nothing they 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 can actually computerize it down to the point where you can drive a fake car and it knows what it's doing. We have the middle part of the race. There's more guys drop out. There's a lot of back and forth up front. You have different guys in the lead. Buddy Baker gets in the lead. Um, Kyle Petty had been in and out of the lead. He he blows up. Um, we do get to halfway. Kyle Petty has to come into the pits. He's leaking oil. They shut off the car. He's done. Uh, Ned Jarrett talks to Kyle. He thinks that they were burning up a piston. They have some green flag stops. Ken Squire says that Kyle Petty's two-year-old son, Adam, had become a Daryl Waltrip fan, and he tries calling him every day. And then here's David Hobbs. They told me he had real trouble at home. His two-year-old son, uh, Adam, has become a Daryl Waltrip fan, tries to call him up on the phone every day. Here's A.J. Foy coming back out of the pits. I do, but I'm not a fan. I just want money. I do, but I'm just, a, I'm not a fan. I just want money. Now, I love David Hobbs, unapologetically. I have no idea what kind of crack that he was hitting right before he made that comment because it makes no sense. It's like Hobbs is like, I called Daryl too. I just want money. Maybe by this point he was just, he was like Marshawn Lynch. I'm just here to make money and don't get fined. I don't know. And they're talking to Kel under every caution. They have another caution here, a single car crash. Larry Newber says that Joe Rutman just took a drink of fuel. I think that he meant he came in and got gas. But if Joe Rutman was drinking fuel during the race, that's pretty hardcore. Maybe it helps his octane. <laughs> Keep you regular. On this caution, when they're talking to Kale in the car, he specifically asked if Daryl's okay. And you know that there was a huge rivalry <clears throat> between Yarborough and Waltrip for years. And just, it shows you that the guys actually they cared about each other. Whether they were mad at each other and they would race each other as hard as they could, nobody wanted to see anybody else get hurt. Well, it, it, I mean, I hate to keep going back to the wrestling part of it, but it's like the kayfabe. They wanted the outside public to think, you know, hey, we really hate these people. We, you know, if they was to fall over dead, we wouldn't care. But behind the scenes, it was, you know, it was a brotherhood. They actually didn't want them to get hurt. They wanted to beat the fire out of them, but they didn't want them to get hurt. Yeah, they wanted to whip their ass, maybe, but they wanted to be the one that hurt them, not the car. Yeah, they they wanted to whip their ass. They didn't want to kill nobody. They just wanted a good ass whipping. Yeah. So we have Jeff Bodine out of the race now. He's had a problem. Um, 
Nuber actually talks to Bodine about running a full-faced helmet, and Bodine is advocating for it for safety reasons. David Hobbs agrees that full-faced helmets are great for safety. Andy, this is 1983. You still had drivers, at least into 2001, because of Earnhardt, um, Earnhardt Jr., and there was a few others. Maybe Spencer was one of them that was still in 2001 running open-faced helmets when in 1983 they're they're really pushing it as a safety thing yeah you know 20 years later and they, and it, i guess it goes back to one of the things if that's what you trained on and that's what you grew up with that's what you're comfortable with i can understand how they would have more of a blind spot you know with a full face helmet rather than an open face but at the same time, you know, which one do you want to have? You want to get hurt because you had an open face or you want to add some mirrors and wear a closer. Uh, we go to the, we get to a restart. Dick Brooks gets back in the lead, passing Joe Rutman. There's only eight cars on the lead lap. We're about 115 laps into the race. I'm guessing that a few of the cars had lost a lap on a green flag pit stop, but I mean, you had a lot of cars that were um, out of the race from attrition, though, that had, I mean, Earnhardt, both Petties, Waltrip had wrecked, Bodine, uh, Tim Richmond. There was others that was out of the race already. And these are, I'm not talking about the guys that barely made the race and had also dropped out. I'm talking about these are guys that could all win. They were already out of the yeah. race. Yeah, you're talking about national champions, you know, the, some of the best super speedway drivers that you got. What was, I've, I've already counted three or four that the bearings went on. I mean, that's usually something that happens when you run out of oil or something, but they were just running out because they're running the motor so hard. Yeah. You have Dale Bonnet slowing, waves the field by him. He has to pit for four tires because he had a left side tire coming apart. Um, he goes more than one lap down. So he's a lap plus half a lap down. But he, they because the leaders are spread out a little bit, we're watching Bonnet over this run driving the leaders down by himself. That car was badass fast. We have Kel Yarbrough now in the lead. And Joe Rutman second, Buddy Baker third, Bobby Allison's lap down, but he's running in the front pack. Uh, Dick Brooks has a right side tire go down. He has to pit for a green flag stop. 131 laps in, uh, back from a commercial break. You see all the blown engines as they're showing the stat of all the people out of the race. Neil Bonnet just blowing through the pack, driving like a man possessed. Mark Martin. Um, has a crash near the end of the lead pack. And as they're racing to the flag, Bonnet tries to get a lap back, but Rutman blocks him. And Bonnet didn't like that at all, did he, Andy? No, that that was not well-received. And, you know, you can't hardly blame him because he's done proved that he can pass any of them when he wants to. And But I don't blame Rutman for doing it. Somebody that fast, you want to keep him a lap down. That's the thing. I mean, when earlier in the race, Brooks had slowed down when that caution came out, it was going to give uh, Waltrip and 
at least like speed a lap back, it looked like. But um, here you have Rutman, who's like, no way. I know how fast he is. I do not want him back on the lead lap. And uh, he does. He managed to keep him a lap down here, have some pit stops under caution. Ken Squire says Waltrip is in. He's been out of the race for 100 laps. So now Ken is sharing whatever David is having in the booth. It, it might have been a glasses charity or something. Who knows? We go back to green. We have Joe Rutman trying to hold off Bonnet, who keeps trying to get his lap back. A car blows up. There's a crash in turn one, and Bonnet gets his lap back here. Uh, once we get to a restart after this crash, we have Buddy Baker, who was out front, but he's quickly passed by Rutman. 50 laps to go. You've got Rutman, Baker, Ron Bouchard, who has not been anywhere near the lead at all, and he's up in the front now. Yarbrough in fourth, Bonnet fifth. Three wide for third. Bonnet goes to third, drops Kellen Bouchard. Then uh, Bonnet catches the front two by himself, and right as he caught him, he blows up. So there is your fastest car of the race, and he's just blown up. Maybe just a little bit too fast. And then now you have Ron Bouchard also blow up. He's in the garage, caution out. 34 laps to go, four cars on the lead lap. Here it is. Here's your argument. We only had four cars on the lead lap. You know, 10th place was two or three laps down. You idiots. If you would watch this race or any of these races, every once in a while you did have a stinker. Nine times out of 10, if those cars mechanically could hold up like they do now, and you might every race or two have one or two cars go out. I mean, just imagine now Waltrip crashed, so I'll take him out of the equation. But you have Earnhardt, both Petties, Neil Bonnet, Harry Gant, Tim Richmond, Jeff Bodine, um, and, and now Bonnet. They're all out of the race with engine problems. Every single one of those cars would have still been on the lead lap, and all of them could have won. Well, that's the thing that I think a lot of uh, the newer fans, and they don't realize that back in the early 80s, here, we, don't have, we didn't have CNC machines. We, you had somebody on a lathe or on a mill making these parts. And if you had one bad part or one bad run of valves or bad run of bearings or anything like that, you would see teams go for weeks blowing motors every weekend because of one bad part. Now they've got the technology down to, you know, it's a science. They've got CNC machines that's going to make it exactly this many thousands. And the engine's going to be exactly this many thousands on the valves seals, everything, and you don't have them blowing up. Put that technology back then, and you're going to have 20 drivers with a chance to win every weekend. Yeah, pretty much. Um, we do, We've so we've had all these blown tires, blown engines. We're down to 23 laps to go. CBS announces with 23 laps to go that they will not take another commercial break. Hallelujah. I mean, they'll take a commercial break with, it seems like at some places, 
eight laps to go now. CBS, 23 laps to go in the Daytona 500, says we will not take another commercial. That's pretty cool. Well, I've, seen, I've seen them actually take a commercial break during the green-white checkered, or right before the green-white checkered. You know, we'll be right back after we clean up this. And it's like, what? No, let's see. Go, go, go. Yeah, you don't want to miss the very end of the race. A.J. Foyt, Lake Speed, both out of the race, 19 to go. The leaders are riding around, trying just trying to get to the end. Not a lot happens, honestly, over this last run. You've got four laps to go. you got Baker in the lead. Yarborough second. You have the third place of um, Rutman and Bill Elliott in fourth. Those are the four cars on the lead lap. They're all right together. And over the last few laps, they stay in lockstep till the last lap where Kelly Yarborough down the back stretch makes his move on Bonnet or makes his move on Baker and uh, slingshots around him for the win. So there's a last lap pass for the win in the Daytona 500. Um, Yarborough passes Baker. And with all due respect, Baker, I don't even think he had one of the top five fastest cars at Daytona. And I'm not really sure that Kale, he he definitely didn't have the best car. But those guys, they saved their equipment. They knew what they had to do. And they was there at the end, and Kale pulls off. I mean, I, you could say it's an upset because he's with a he's with a one-year-old car that he even admits does not draft nearly as good as the car he had wrecked and wasn't as fast. But Yarborough was smart enough to know when to make those moves, and he wins the race. Well, that goes back to, you know, they had so many things they had to take into account for, you know, teams. they couldn't run wide open all the time. They had to decide, you know, am I going to run wide open to start with, get out in front, am I going to wait for the end of the race? And whoever was best at managing that was usually the one that ended up winning. Yeah, and it happened to be Yarborough, um, Yarborough for this race. And I don't know what else you could really say about the race. It was, if they just wouldn't have had so many guys drop out with mechanical problems, it would have been, um, it would have been a phenomenal race. And I, and I think I maybe just kind of glossed over it. <clears throat> but when Dick Brooks had the tire go down, he never could get his lap back. But I honestly think that Neil Bonnet, Dick Brooks, Richard Petty, probably in that order, had the best three cars at Daytona. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the other thing. Look how, look how fast Petty was. I'm wishing Bonnet was just. He had a rocket strapped to his eyes. He he was all over the place. So you got there's probably eight, nine races there that we dropped out because of him that could easily won. Yeah. So I mean it's it's a good win for Yarborough winning the, the this five hundred here in eighty three. Um and there was an article that I read after this race and it was titled kale showed that he did have nerve and basically it's a sports writer that had pulled up an article from two years 
before that with Junior Johnson saying that Kel Yarborough has lost his nerve as a race car driver. Word of Johnson's quote drifted through the garage. Basically, this article says that um, there was a wreck in 1980. Said that Johnson said the Yarborough was not as gutsy after crashing in a Talladega race in 1980 and that he had lost his nerve and that's why he got rid of Kale. And, uh, and it says anybody who does not now think that the 42 year old Kale Yarborough is not brave on a race track has inhaled too many exhaust fumes. Andy Kale Yarborough was 42 years old. Yeah, that's another thing that, that, that amazing. You look at him, and I'm 43. You're 42. I mean, that's our age. And you look at him, and he looks so much older. He looks like he's almost in his, yeah, mid fifties, sixties, easy. All these guys. I mean, yeah, it's it's just yeah. the life that these guys lived. I guess you know, just took a toll on them uh, back in the day because. These guys, it's almost like the Arn Anderson syndrome. Arn Anderson perpetually was 60 years old, even when he was 25. Kel Yarborough must have perpetually been 60 years old because when I read that he was 42 years old, I had to reread it. I said, wait a minute, what? I, I, thought, I, mean, I thought surely he was 50 at this point. Yeah, because, I mean, you got to figure he's, He's there in the fight in what was seventy nine when they had the first tail or the you know real televised race. He's there for that. He's there for all the stuff through the seventies. You're like, okay, he's got to be pushing sixty by this point. Forty two? No, no, that's impossible. Yeah, yeah, I, I got a kick out of that when when we're thinking that these guys that are in the twilight of their career are the same age we are now. So uh, yeah. I'm- Nowadays, you think that, you know, like Jimmy Johnson or Jeff Gordon, I mean, with the training ready, healthy, living lifestyles, yeah, they they were 50 or 60 and looked like they're 30. And back then, they was 30 and looked like they're 60. Yeah, so, all right, we get, we've got the 1983 Speed Weeks. Um, I know a lot more about 1983 than I ever did before. Uh, tackling this race and the speed weeks. What's uh, what's your big takeaway of the 1983 Daytona experience? That the fact that you had Yarborough and Walter having such dramatic wrecks in the same weekend, and knowing that either one of those wrecks could have ended a lot worse than what it was. And what does that do on down the road if, God forbid, something really bad would happen? And, yeah, and, don't, and yep. Rusty Wallace. Rusty Wallace had Wallace, really nasty direct too. Yeah. And, I mean, you that's know, at the beginning of his career. He's, he's you know, he's young rookie driver at this point. But the one that always got me was Walter because when he comes back, I mean, you can feel the gas the entire place when he comes back across the field, driver's side door facing him after he done hit the wall or the bank and knocked himself out. And then he comes right across and Jarborough almost nails him again. I mean, a game of inches, I guess. 
Yeah, I mean, it almost did. It almost took out Yarborough. Um, and once a car hits a wall like Walter Pitt and comes back across the track, it's compromised. The car at that point, no matter how good they were built, is compromised by hitting as hard as it did. So one more hit, it could have really, really been a bad, bad deal. Yeah, and that's another one of the safety inventions they've come up with in the past 20 years. Then the driver, he's right on the door. I mean, there's no cushion like we've got. Um, he was right, seats right there on the door. So, I mean, that could have been deadly. Yeah, so 1983 is in the books. Um, overall, I would give the, the race itself, I would, if we're putting it on our 100-point sliding scale, I'd say that's a solid mid to upper 80s and it would have been way higher if we just didn't have that kind of attrition yeah uh, that's that's a fair statement i mean i'd say about 85 because the tail end of the race kind of lets you down just a little bit so you know the very last but with everything going on and all the events and knowing the drivers and what they eventually do yeah it, it, it was a good race so we're we're done with 1983. Andy, up next, we've got the 1988 Daytona Speed Weeks. And in 1988, cars are a lot different. I mean, a lot different. They're restricted. And we have the Bobby and Davey show coming up for the 1988 500. Oh, can't wait, can't wait. Uh, I'm glad to get this one out. Um, glad to be back. If you have any comments, uh, hit us up on the Facebook group. We'll be glad to share your comments in the, on the next show. Uh, if you have specific comments about 1988 or you have something about 1983 that we missed or you want us to share, just, uh, just let us know and we will try to accommodate you and we will be back next week with the 1988 review of the Daytona 500. Andy, Anything else before we hit it tonight? No, just glad to be back, back in the saddle again, and uh, hopefully y'all like it, and you'll come back next week. Yep, and next week we may have a third guest. We could have the keyboard warrior Justin Edgel uh, back with us, and if not Justin, I've got a couple other guys that um, that know a little bit about NASCAR that may uh, may want to be on the show. So we'll we'll see where next week takes us. So for Andy Waddell. I am Ricky Wittenberg, and you've listened to Racing Through Time, 1983, Daytona Speedway.